Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour today is award-winning science journalist Florence Williams. In an era when humans spend most of their time indoors staring at the dim glow of a screen, many of us have forgotten the simple pleasure of a stroll through a wooded glen, a hike up a secluded mountain path, or a nap in the grass. And in her new book, Florence Williams, The Nature Fix is what it's called. Florence Williams amuses many of us have a dog or go to the beach occasionally, but is that enough? She asks, what if? What if something serious is missing from our lives? What if an occasional trip to the neighborhood park is not enough? What if we've turned our backs on something that isn't merely pleasant and enjoyable, but it is in fact vital to our happiness, our capacity to learn, even our survival? The latest science shows that nature is necessary in our lives. How do we recapture it? Those are some of the questions asked in the new book, The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. Uh, we have with us, uh, I believe, on the line, uh, Florence Williams. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Appreciate you uh, taking time to be with us. Uh, I think you're uh, out on your book tour at this point. Uh, yes, it starts tomorrow. It's oh. a trip to Colorado. Oh, oh to Colorado. You're you yeah, used to you used to live in Boulder. I understand. I used to live in Boulder. I lived there for about five years, and then I moved to Washington D.C. And that's that's when this book really started. Uh, let me let me first mention that you'll be at the King's English Bookshop uh, a week from Thursday, so Thursday, February sixteenth, seven p.m. for a book signing uh, there. Um, maybe we could start there. You you have a. Uh, it's a moving passage. It's also funny. Um, you're loading up the van, moving from Boulder, Colorado, to Washington, uh, D.C. All the neighborhood kids come to come to watch. You're in tears almost immediately. But you say you 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 didn't you, at that time. You didn't realize what you'd be missing. That's right. Um, so, would you like me to read that section, or just uh, just talk about that, and then I'll have you read uh, page one. Sure. Um, well, I spent, all in all, I spent uh, two decades living in lovely towns in the Rocky Mountains, <laughs> very spoiled by my access uh, to nature uh, and to trails. And, um, yeah, it was kind of heartbreaking to, to watch the moving trucks fill up with our kayaks and our bikes, <laughs> you know, all, all the toys I thought I would never use again in the big city. Uh, so, yeah, it was, it was a very, it was a poignant moment, actually. Um, and, and then I, I did, I landed in D.C., and it just felt like, you know, kind of another planet and a crazy, crazy place to live. <laughs> uh, I've lived briefly in the D.C. area. I did an internship, uh, this was many years ago, and uh, it, you know, urban area. And <laughs> I mean, there are parks, right? But, it, but you can't just drive 10 minutes and be in the wilderness. That's right. And it was a huge shift for me, you know, psychologically, emotionally. I, I noticed that, um, you know, I was very bothered by the noise and by all the asphalt, by the traffic. You know, these are things that obviously a lot of Americans kind of get used to every day. But um, for me, it felt like a really profound loss. And I, you know, I wasn't sleeping so well. I was getting depressed. I was getting anxious. I really felt like my environment made a big difference kind of in my psychological life. And so that's what led to writing the book. And, of course, science is backing this up now. You've talked to a lot of scientists, including David Strayer, University of Utah. We'll talk about him. Um, I wonder if you could read uh, page one, then just over the, uh, over the page to finish the paragraph, page two. Um, you know what? I think I might have a different uh, page numbering. Oh, oh this, is, this is just the introduction, the, the first page of the introduction. Okay. The very beginning. I was hiking, that one? Yes. That paragraph? Okay, great. 
I was hiking in Arches National Park when the Mappiness app in my phone pinged me. Some people would be annoyed, but not I. Finally, I was somewhere outside and beautiful and could tell the app how happy, relaxed, and alert I was. Very, very, and very. I told it so by tapping on the screen. And then I victoriously took a photo of the smooth, salmon-colored cliffs in front of me. Small topographies of lichen poked through a crack and a few perfect white clouds pottered across a French blue sky. Let Big Brother, toiling away in some windowless university lab, eat that for lunch. After many months and 234 interactions with this app, I almost always got pinged when I was indoors and working, which didn't seem very helpful to either the Mappiness Project or to my own. And it didn't seem fair, because I was outside fairly often, wasn't I? Mappiness is in the midst of a multi-year big data grab, asking tens of thousands of volunteers to record their moods and activities twice a day at random times. And then it matches those responses to an exact GPS location from which it extracts information on the weather, daylight, and environmental characteristics. The aim is simple. What makes people happy? Does place matter or not so much? So this is the the mappiness uh, uh, project. One of it, of course, this is uh, centering on place. So you know, does place matter? It also is. Uh, it, it occurred to me, and you uh, write this. It's kind of a test of our perceptions of what we do and where we are, and and where we actually are and what we actually do. Right. What 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 the data has shown is that. People are actually happiest when they're outside, <laughs> and it's not just that they're not at work because, um, you know, the researchers sort of had ways to control for that. Like, they, they talked to people on weekends when not very many people were working, and yet, even though we know we're, or we report being happy outside, we don't seem to really prioritize that sense of happiness. It's like, we don't really know it, and so what does that mean, you know, and, and it turns out that other research has found out that we just kind of undervalue how happy nature makes us feel. Like we don't we don't realize it makes us as happy as it actually does, which is interesting. Hmm. Uh, uh, hence your uh, your sense of victory because it, it I guess it ra- randomly pings you and then uh, yeah, it just wherever you are. Pings you. Right. Right. So, so in this case, you were hiking in arches, so victory, right? To that point, I was like, "Yay! It finally caught me outside." But after years' worth of data, you know what? What my charts and you know pie charts showed was that I was actually only outside about 7% of the time that the app pinged me. And it turns out that that's a really characteristic um, uh, percentage, that, that most Americans are outside around 5% of our time. It's kind of appalling. Yeah, but I, I guess we, maybe because we want to be outside more, we think we're outside more, but we're, we're actually not. That's, you, you were kind of in the, in the percentage, and that is pretty low. Um, you, you grew up in New York City, did you? I did. Uh, so, you know, this is, this is going to be a prejudice of a Westerner, but, uh, <laughs> were you able to <laughs> spend much time in nature in New York City? I guess you got Central Park, right? Well, it's ironic, but yeah, I grew up, I was lucky enough, I grew up a, a few blocks from Central Park, and, um, I was there all the time. I loved it, just as many New Yorkers love Central Park. You know, it was designed by Frederick Law Olmsted who was really a genius. He really understood that people who lived in cities needed this kind of um, uh, release valve. They needed a place to go where they could actually see 
see far expanses of grass and trees and shrubbery. And he deliberately designed the hiking trails and walking paths so that they kind of curved around, you know, so there was a sense of mystery. I mean, he had this very, I think, intuitive sense of psychology um, and what made people feel happy. Uh, there's been a, a pretty rapid increase, um, it, it, so rapid I think it just has felt, uh, we, we haven't even noticed its effects in our, in our lives, of, uh, we're, we're just in front of screens more often, or it's in our digital world. And there have been studies uh, about that, th- those effects. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and, and uh, what that does to us versus uh, getting outdoors. Sure, absolutely. Some of the interesting studies actually have been done by Utah's very own um, Dr. David Strayer, who's a psychologist, neuroscientist at University of Utah. And he measured uh, volunteers walking in the Arboretum in Salt Lake, and half of them were allowed to talk on their cell phones while they walked around, and half of them um, had to put their cell phones away. And then he tested sort of you know, what they remembered from their beautiful walks. You know, there are all these nice shrubs and trees and, um, you know, various features of that arboretum. And it turns out that people who were talking on their cell phones basically didn't remember anything. (laughs) They didn't really notice, you know, where they were. And, you know, to him that really brought home how, how restricting it is for us to be on the phone if we care about, you know, where we are. Or if we're going to derive comfort from nature, we really need to put the phones away. Mm. I thought that was quite revealing. By the way, Dr. Strayer is a, is a foremost uh, authority on on distracted driving, right? And you, I, I believe you've been in. I, I'm curious, and I believe <laughs> I believe I read this in the book. You've been in the car with Dr. Strayer. Does does he practice what he <laughs> preaches? Oh yeah, he totally does. He uh, he doesn't even like people to eat in the car. He's very offended by that. Of course, I eat in the car all the time. I also talk on my phone in the car, which um, now I feel really guilty about doing because according to Dr. Strayer's research, uh, when, we, when we're doing anything at all in the car other than just driving, our attention flags you know, in this pretty big way. So he studies the effect of like, you know, drinking and also the effect of technology on driving. And it turns out they're not that different. You know, if you're actually on your phone, there is a lot going on on the road that you are not seeing. And he has uh, kind of a, well, a lot of the car manufacturers uh, are, aren't so happy with him, right? Because he, because they're, you know, uh, the, the, the manufacturers are kind of going to this cocoon effect where we have everything and all the conveniences with us in the car. And he's pushing back on that and saying that uh, we, that's distracting and, and potentially dangerous. Yeah, there's, you know, there are screens in the cars that are built into the cars now. You can't really even buy a new car that doesn't have a screen. And you have to interact with the screen in order for, you know, in order to do things. Um, and his research has shown that if you're actually, it's the act of speaking that really distracts you from what you see in your visual perception. Mm. So if you're talking to Siri or you're talking to your car, uh, you know, it, it affects your driving ability. Mm. Now, that's interesting. Uh, similar effects, I guess, if you're out in nature. It, uh, if, if you're out in nature on your phone, that dulls the uh, healthful effects of being in nature? Well, it does. I mean, if we believe the premise that being in nature is good for us, that it makes us calmer and happier and more creative, and a lot of the research shows that it does, if we believe that, then we also need to be fully present in order to maximize those benefits. So, you know, there's a lot of talk out there about mindfulness and meditation and sort of paying attention to what's around you. And it turns out that 
being in nature really facilitates mindfulness because we see something cool, like we'll see a bird. Or you know, I was I was out for a walk the other day in in the middle of a park in Washington D.C. where there's a um, a canal, and a huge great blue heron landed right in front of me, and it's impossible not to see that. Well, unless I guess you're on your phone, but I wasn't on my phone, and it was like this little moment of sort of delight and a little moment of awe. And other research has shown that when we experience moments like that, it takes us out of ourselves. We stop thinking or perseverating about our problems. Um, We feel more connected to people and the world around us. So ironically, being in nature makes us kind of better people, makes us more human. Let's take a break. When we come back, uh, I want to uh, dive into some of the science, and uh, we'll, we'll go first to Japan. Um, there, there are a couple of different theories, I, I believe, uh, overall arching theories on why nature, science are looking into this now. One scientist you talked to in the book says we're late getting to this, right? To yes. He making that connection. Been, can, you, can you hear me okay? Yes. Great. Um, yeah, there, there, uh, well, there's a journalist, Richard Louvre, who's written a lot about what he calls nature deficit disorder. Uh, and, and he sees this especially in kids, where, where kids who don't spend enough out, time outside really seem to be more anxious, and um, they're depressed, they, they're not sort of fully developing their social and emotional skills. And um, he believes that, you know, it's because kids are innately affiliated to nature. They want to be out there exploring. Uh, and so when they're not, uh, you know, we see real changes in their behavior and also their emotional life. I want to talk uh, about some of the science. First, go to Japan and said, uh, by the way, an, an article in, uh, of yours in Outside Magazine, I like the, uh, the, the title, Take Two Hours of Pine Forest and Call Me in the Morning. We'll, we'll talk a bit about that following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement. Online at utahumanities.org. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members, and support for arts reporting on Utah Public Radio comes from the Marie Eccles Kane Foundation Russell family, strengthening the arts and humanities throughout northern Utah. On the next Radio Lab, she would try to say things. Uh, I do art. And couldn't. The story of two artists. Free-floating, almost dreamlike, sensuous. Whose minds both unraveled. The repetition, the obsession. To the beat of the same drum. Unraveling Bolero. That's on the next Radio Lab. Join us this morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We are talking with award-winning journalist Florence Williams. Her new book is The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. And uh, in an era when humans spend much of their time indoors, staring at the dim glow of a screen, many of us have forgotten the simple pleasure of a stroll through a wooded glen, a hike up a secluded mountain path, or a nap in the grass. Florence Williams says many of us have a dog or go to the beach occasionally, but is that enough? And in this book, she's talked to many scientists uh, who are uh, investigating this connection between health um, and cognition, and being out in nature. And uh, I'd love to know what your favorite place is and what the effects of nature are on you and uh, where you go. Uh, you can call us at 800-826-1495 or email us to upraccess at gmail.com. Uh, so Florence Williams, you talked with uh, 
with, with many scientists. Um, let's talk about the scientists. That, uh, Japan is, seems to be kind of a hotbed of, uh, uh, in uh, quantifying nature's role in uh, lowering stress and boosting mental health. Um, tell us a little bit about the, the science going on there. Yes, I was fortunate enough to get an assignment from Outside Magazine to visit Japan where researchers are studying the effects of pretty short walks in the woods on subjects' nervous systems. So they're taking, um, especially college students who tend to be subjects in tests, um, they're, they're taking them to the woods where they walk for 20 minutes, and then they also take another group to a downtown kind of urban area where they walk for 20 minutes. And that's partly to sort of tease out the effects of exercise, because we know exercise is good for us. Um, and so, so, you know, these kids walk in both of these environments. And then what the scientists are finding is that it's really only in the wooded natural environments where people's um, blood pressures start to drop, where um, they report increases in mood and happiness and decreases in feelings like anger and frustration. Um, they report lower cortisol levels, um, which is a stress hormone, when they're in the woods, but not when they're walking in the city. What's the what's the difference? You know, uh, I guess they're drilling down into why. They're drilling down. Yeah, why does this happen? Why does nature make us feel good? And there are a lot of different theories out there. They're sort of you know hard to prove. But um, um, this guy Yoshifumi Miyazaki, who is kind of the grandfather of the research in Japan. He just says, you know, look, you know, over millions of years, humans evolved in these natural systems. And all of our perceptual systems in our brains are geared towards taking in information about nature, right? They're, they're about um, predators or they're about um, grass or about you know, drinking water, bodies of water, trees, fruits, and things we can eat. Um, and, our, and when we live in a city or when we're in a city, we get stimuli that is much more intense than that. Uh, You know, it's straight lines, it's Euclidean geometry, it's tons of honking cars. It's sort of a lot for our brains to process. And what happens, he thinks, is that when we go back to nature, our brains are just kind of in their sweet zone where they can really understand the world around us and that that has a calming, happy-making effect on us. I want to talk a a little bit about uh, increasing urbanization. You say in the book that uh, in 2008... So when uh, more people are, are in urban areas around the world than in rural areas, and this is only increasing, you've got mega cities, and that's just a trend that's increasing. So uh, that's, a, that, that's a countervailing trend, isn't it? We, we want to get into nature, not into the right. cities. Well, I think one of the reasons that psychologists and neuroscientists are so interested in studying you know, what happens to our brains in nature is that we are becoming increasingly disconnected from it. And so there's this kind of sense of urgency. <laughs> you know, we need to figure out how to live in these environments. And, um, you know, because most of us now do live in cities, and, and actually in the U.S. it's about 70%, uh, there will be 2 billion more people around the world moving into cities in the next couple of decades. We have to figure out how to make these cities more livable if we believe that nature is actually really critical for our health and happiness. So uh, city parks, is that is yeah, that where we go? Right. Definitely, definitely. Um, and there, there are a lot of city parks now that are sort of sketchy. <laughs> you know, where I live, so, so some of the city parks you don't really want to go in alone, especially as a woman. And, and in fact, you know, we know that you know, different genders respond to nature differently if they associate, you know, certain places with fear. 
Um, I visited Scotland as part of this story, and um, some of the woods in Scotland are, you know, it's kind of filled with drug addicts, basically. And so it's a national policy there now to sort of clean up the woodlands, um, you know, make them friendlier, you know, have school programs in them during the day, uh, more kind of ranger-led um, activities, uh, you know, as a way to get people to use the parks more and have them feel safer there. There are a lot of um, um, city programs now to get kids out to use the parks. Um, some doctors, for example, in my city, are actually prescribing park visits to their young patients. They're prescribing park visits. Yeah, it's, it's called a nature prescription. <laughs> wow. Be- because they believe that um, you know this is one really effective way to combat a lot of chronic health problems, hmm. such as obesity, right, which we know is a chronic problem, especially among kids today, um, but also things like depression and anxiety. So there are doctors who have found that uh, if they encourage their patients to really, you know, go go play in the parks, go walk in the parks, go be outside, it's it's good not only for the patients but even for their families as well who come with them. Well, talk about uh, childhood and getting getting kids out into nature. First of all, safety of parks, perception of safety, uh, removing hurdles to, to people feeling like they can go to parks. These are all problems, I guess, the cities are, are dealing with. How? Have you found uh, s- some places that are having success there? Oh yeah, and and not only not only are they making existing parks safer, but there are a lot of cities that are actually adding to their greenery. Um, for example, uh, you know, New York took this old elevated subway line and um, you know filled it with beautiful plants and a walking path, and it's now the High Line. Um, it's this incredibly popular both tourist spot and also places a place that local people in the neighborhood use. Um, it's increased property values and the tax base, you know, exponentially in that neighborhood. So it's had these just expounding effects, not only on people's health, but also on the economy. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, children. I, I talked uh, oh, in the last few months with uh, the writer Emma Maris, who's a big advocate of let's let's have kids be kids, and, and especially a part of childhood needs to be kids roaming in the, you know, quote, at least semi-wild. Um, what, what's the... I guess scientists are telling us that uh, we need to get kids uh, as early as possible out into nature. Yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm a huge fan of Emma Maris. I couldn't agree with her more. Kids are designed to be exploratory creatures. You know, they love to be outside. They love to explore things. They, they do have an innate love of nature. You know, they tend to be just fascinated by bugs and by interesting colors and plants and animals. Um, and yet, if you don't cultivate that love early, you can actually miss it. You can sort of miss the window to do that. Um, and unfortunately, I think we're seeing that more and more. Um, um, kids are outside um, doing free play, you know, vastly less than they used to be. Most kids now are kind of overscheduled. They're overprogrammed. They're in sporting events that are kind of, um, you know, micromanaged by adults, you know, or coaches. Uh, and and they're, they're, they're potentially really missing out on an opportunity for their development. What's happening in that in that free play? What are what are scientists telling us? So that, that, you know, it's unscheduled time that that doesn't happen when we you know when you go to ballet class or whatever. Yeah, so that's when kids really um, learn about who they are. It's when they learn how to negotiate sometimes with their friends, you know, in a, in a kind of unmanaged way by adults. Um, they have to negotiate and navigate social relationships. They 
build their gross motor skills because they're using all parts of their body. They're climbing trees and hanging from limbs and, you know, doing somersaults down the meadow slope. <laughs> um, you know, soccer players, they, they, they're really great at developing their quads, uh, you know, and their calf muscles, but, you know, their upper arms are getting totally neglected. And so, so actually some doctors are seeing, like, weird injuries in kids who don't have the muscle development uh, that we did when we were kids growing up. What uh, what happened with your kids when you moved from Boulder to D.C.? And in the book, you have this scene, you know, the moving van pulls up, all the kids gather, and you say your kids at that point were the, I guess, the oldest kids in the neighborhood and the leaders in the, you know, they get home from school and then until dark, all the kids will be out, you know, in the yeah, in, in nature. And then, then, you, then you pack up, move to D.C., and that's a big change. It was a big change. My daughter cried. <laughs> she, she cried for about a year. She was really mad at us. <laughs> she was eight years old at the time of the move. Um, but, you know, fortunately, because we had lived in Colorado and because we were very active spending time outside with our kids, they had developed this innate love of nature. Um, and I'm so happy to say that they, they still love it. They still love being outside. Um, we, you know, we don't get to, you know, send them loose, you know, into the neighborhood, into the wee hours as much as we did in Boulder. But, um, but they, they go to summer camp. They still like to build forts, you know, in, <laughs> along the river. Here we have a beautiful Potomac River in D.C. So we, we try to get out when we can. And because they have this love of nature from when they were children, it's a gift that will give them benefits for their entire lives. How... How much nature? How how big a dose is is needed? Uh, <laughs> That's you, a great question. You have a you have a chapter on that. Uh, by the way, the the Finnish recommendation you say is five hours a month. Is that enough? <laughs> yeah, the Finnish got very specific about it. It's really when it comes to nature dose, it's actually really hard to figure out. You know, how is there kind of a minimum daily requirement? Does it vary by person or by age? Um, and it, it probably is really variable. You know, there are times in our lives when we may really crave, um, you know, looking at the sunset because we have something to figure out in our life, or maybe we're recovering from grief, or maybe we're like, you know, Cheryl Strayed, you know, who, who had a heroin problem and whose mother had died and whose marriage had broken up, and she needed three months, you know, to recover from that on the trail. Um, the great thing is once we know that nature can help us, then we can really kind of titrate it, um, you know, based on our own individual needs. I wonder, uh, uh, you do a bit of a comparison, or at least it's implicit in the book, of uh, what we as Americans do, getting to nature, and, and what Europeans, for example, do, or Asians. I wonder if you could compare and contrast what other countries are doing to help people get into, into nature versus what we do in the U.S., yeah, I think especially uh, in Northern Europe, countries are very proactive. Uh, a lot of the, the pub public health experts, government agencies, are very proactive about encouraging um, people to go outside. And this is you know, partly because they have socialized medicine in those countries. And so if they can prevent people from getting sick, if they can prevent people from having depression, if they can prevent sort of job-related stress, then they can save a lot of money. And so they realize that preventative health care is very important to their economies uh, and to their workplaces. And so in Finland, the, the health experts recommend that people go out five, a minimum of five hours a month, so a little over an hour a week of time um, in, you know, they have wonderful woods all over Finland. It's like 80% forest in <laughs> the whole country. So, you know, finding, finding trees is not a problem. 
Um, and, you know, the, the, the people in Finland are very active about cross-country skiing, and they love to uh, pick berries and mushrooms and things like that. So they're still very connected to the land, you know, in a way that I think a lot of other countries aren't. But the researchers have found that, you know, if you can go out an hour a week, you can really prevent mild or moderate depression and save the healthcare system a lot of money. Hmm. I wonder what you find in the, uh, you comparing and contrasting, say, Eastern with Western U.S. Uh, and I wonder, I don't know, if we're preaching to the choir in, 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 the, in the West. Seems like a lot of people get, get out. Some people don't. I think a lot of people do get out in the West. Uh, and, and I think that's one of the, you know, just tremendous, tremendous things about, about living out there. You know, there's a lot of public land. Um, there's a lot of state land. There are wonderful state parks. So many families, you know, from all walks of life really value, you know, fishing and hunting. Um, and it's, it's just terrific for their kids. I think the problem still is that um, our school systems don't value time outside don't always value environmental education, don't always value recess even. And we know from the research that kids learn best when they're allowed some time every day to run around outside. So, you know, it's not even that the families are causing problems for these kids. Sometimes that the schools are. Hmm. What, uh, what's your recommendation then? Um, increase recess? Get, people, yeah, get the kids on definitely. field trips? Yes, all that. I think I think parents really need to pressure the school districts not to cut recess. This is a natural national trend going on everywhere. Um, you know, there's so much pressure to um, uh, develop curricula and sort of keep up with the standardized testing. Uh, and and you know, because of that, you know, kids are really losing an opportunity. I think to develop kind of other parts of their brains that are more involved with social and emotional skills. So yeah, I think parents need to fight for recess. Um, I think that, uh, you know, it would be great. For example, in Oregon, the state of Oregon uh, passed a ballot initiative that requires every, I think it's every fourth grader or every sixth grader to have a full week of um, field-based nature education. So they're actually learning about um, trees and plants and animals and ecosystems. Pretty cool. Hmm. So I guess for uh, for different people, they'd have a different definition of, of what nature is, right? It would, yeah, so, so, I need to find it, yeah. So what, going to a park, is that, that as good as going into the backcountry? Well, I think that they can accomplish different but very beneficial things. So even houseplants, believe it or not, seem to have some positive effects on our minds, especially um, for cognition. <laughs> so, you know, our brains get really kind of fatigued by looking at our computers all day. And if we can look up and just gaze at a tree out the window or gaze at a houseplant, it actually has been shown to have um, kind of these, these little um, effects on our creativity and our ability to concentrate, you know, a few minutes later. So that's a really small dose of nature. Um, parks can provide us, um, you know, a way to kind of boost our mood and feel happier, um, boost our creativity and cognition. But, but we also need these more extended stays in wilderness if we come to a kind of crossroads in our lives or difficult times or rites of passage where we want to, you know, figure out our futures, um, figure out who we are as people, it looks like, you know, these scouting programs and outdoor programs that take kids into the wilderness, it's really important for their ideas of, of um, goal setting and self-esteem in their futures. So it looks like we kind of need all levels of nature, and we just have to figure out how to get it. What do you do? Personally, um, you know, writing is very demanding. 
um, um, occupation. Um, yeah, it is. Requires I renewal, I would, I would expect. <laughs> so what, what do you do? Um, yeah, so I had to learn how to be in nature in a city because I didn't really get it. I, I was kind of spoiled. I thought, oh, if I'm not, you know, on a beautiful mountain, what's the point? So uh, I realized through writing this book and doing the research that, that you know, I, I do need to go into the parks. And, and, I, and so now I take my dog, you know, pretty much every day. And I go for just 30 minutes, you know, if that's all I can get. And while I'm out there, I put my phone away, and I really try to pay attention to the birds and to the bird song, which also has really beneficial effects on our brains. Um, I try to, you know, see what the trees are, where are the buds, you know, what, what plants are coming up, where am I in the season. I walk at night sometimes, too, in my neighborhood, and I look at the stars, and I, you know, look at the moon, and I actually think that helps me sleep better. So I, I've had to learn how to kind of be in the city. And I think that if there's one hope I have for this book, it's that I help other people learn how to do it where they are as well. Mm. You have an article in, uh, in Mother Jones. By the way, I'm, I'm finding these at FlorenceWilliams.com. Uh, it's titled, Is Your Noisy Neighborhood Slowly Killing You? And the, the, you talk about the science of negative sound effects. You referenced this earlier in the program. Um, I wonder if you could expand on that a bit, that, that I, some sounds are helpful and others are not? Yeah, that's right. I actually have a whole chapter on sound in the book. It's something I'm really interested in because when I moved to D.C., it was the number one thing that bothered me. <laughs> it sort of made me bonkers. Uh, I live very close to the flight path for um, planes going into Reagan National Airport. And so sort of once a minute, there's a pretty loud jet flying over my house. And uh, I, it just really bugged me. And I started doing some research about um, you know, effects of noise on our psyches. Uh, and, and there's a lot of research actually coming out of Europe so what they have found is that sort of annoying levels of noise um, increase our blood pressure. Um, and, and also because of that, then people who live near airports have a higher risk of cardiovascular disease. Um, they take more anxiety pills <laughs> and you know, more antidepressants. So, so the health effects actually of living near noise pollution are very real. And unfortunately, they seem to affect um, you know, underprivileged and urban communities even more because we cite you know those communities closer to airports. Those airports have, uh, or sorry, those neighborhoods also have, may have like diesel truck depots and uh, you know be near freeways, things like that. Um, and and also noise pollution affects learning. So if there's a school that's located under a flight path, um, you know the reading and test scores are actually affected by that. What about um, uh, something you, you, that's related, uh, light pollution? Uh, you know, uh, we've done a few programs here on the Dark Skies Initiatives. I don't know if you've done oh, research into that. into the effects of not seeing the dark skies on, on people. Yeah, I was so interested by research showing that um, teenagers in parts of Asia have 90% rates of nearsightedness. And for a long time, Scientists thought, or doctors thought, well, that's just because they, you know, read all the time, or they're on their computers all the time, and so they're doing all this close work, and so they're kind of messing up their nearsighted vision. Um, but it turns out that's not actually what was going on. What's, what really seems to be happening is that those kids are not spending any time outside, <laughs> and our retinas, the parts of our eyes, um, need vitamin D from the sun in order to develop properly. And if our eyes aren't getting enough vitamin D, um, those, the, the retina kind of, it, there's a malformation actually in the shape of the eyeball. So that's really, you know, frightening and strange. And sort of another example of how um, there are unexpected effects to moving our lives 
so holy indoors. With the light thing, when if we're outside, the, the lux levels, the lumens levels are like 10 times higher than from artificial light. And so that also affects our mood. And, and, and I think you have to wonder, well, if it's affecting our retina and it's affecting our mood, you know, what else is it doing to our brains? Hmm. Let's take another break. When we come back more with uh, Florence Williams, her latest book is The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. Florence Williams is coming to uh, Salt Lake City. She'll be at the King's English uh, Bookshop on Thursday, February 16th at uh, 7 p.m. And she's with us for another segment. And you can call and join the program at 1-800-826-1495 or by email to upraccess at gmail.com. More following the break. Is made possible in part by our members and USU Partners in Business Data Analytics Conference, Thursday, February 16th at the USU Eccles Conference Center. Introducing keynote speaker Brad Whiskerchin of COUNT. More about the speaker lineup at partners.usu.edu. I'm Robin Young. Iran was in George W. Bush's axis of evil, and it's on President Trump's travel ban list. But many Iranians live among us, and an Iranian author wants Americans to know about the country they came from and don't always agree with. There are nightingales and roses, and you go mad with the smell of the orange blossom in the spring. Next time, here now. Join us this morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. I'm Daniel Kinka, science reporter for Utah Public Radio, and I want to hear your questions about science. We'd like to answer the questions that our listeners want answers to, talk about the things they want to hear about. If you have comments, story ideas, or questions for any of us at the station, we'd love to hear them. Please visit our website at upr.org or call us at 800-826-1495. You can also share ideas with us on Facebook and Twitter. Just be sure to include the hashtag IMUPR. Thanks for listening. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Florence Williams, author of The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. Uh, She is coming to uh, Utah. She'll be at the King's English Bookshop on Thursday, February 16th at 7 p.m. You're uh, welcome to interact with her here at 800-826-1495 or upraccess at gmail.com is our uh, email uh, address. Florence Williams, we talked just before the break. We talked about uh, talked about sounds. We talked about sights. We'll talk about uh, smell and odor. Uh, you uh, apparently have a habit of crumbling leaves in your hand as you as you walk. <laughs> That's another trick I learned in Asia. <laughs> I forgot to mention that. It's something I, I do also in the city now. Yeah, so, so in Japan and in South Korea, researchers are totally into the aerosols given off by trees, especially um, the Hinoki cypress tree, which is a kind of evergreen. Um, it has a very pungent, kind of wonderful, invigorating odor that's kind of, it's sort of like a Christmas tree meets pine saw. <laughs> um, it's kind of a sharp scent, and it, it is, it's just enlivening and terrific. And uh, so studies there show that, you know, when people inhale these fabulous tree aerosols, um, it also calms their nervous systems, and it seems to boost their immune systems, which is kind of interesting. But it also makes sense that, you know, these aerosols are kind of antibacterial. Um, that's why trees put them out there. You know, they're a defense against um, fungus and other bacterial invasions. Uh, and so, so maybe they're good for humans, too. I don't know. But I know that now, you know, as another way to kind of engage my senses when I'm outside, I make an effort to try to smell, the, especially the evergreen needles. Hmm. 
That's yeah, that's a great idea. I'm gonna I'm gonna start doing that. Yeah, um, check it out. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, stop and smell the roses, right? Uh, crumble the leaves. Um, yeah, there's yeah, there's a reason that expression is uh, so popular. Yeah, I wanted to get us a little bit into nature and then into wilderness uh, here. This discussion, you you point out, of course, the subtitle of the book: Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. Of course, uh, people have known, you know, romantic writers uh, at the forefront of this, that uh, intuited that nature does make us happier, healthier, and more creative. Um, you you write that uh, Beethoven used to go out and literally hug the linden tree in his, I guess, in his yard or, or, or near yeah. him. He had a linden tree uh, in his yard, and he used to go out and hug it. <laughs> he also wrote um, odes to rocks and trees and shrubs. Uh, he used to go for walks uh, in in the woods, you know, and near his near his home. Um, yeah, and, and you know, there are many many philosophers, poets, scientists. Uh, Wordsworth, for example, people think he walked ten thousand miles over his lifetime. I think he walked across the Alps twice. He used to walk, um, you know, many many hours a day, and he would actually compose his poetry while he was walking. Hmm. Uh, and of course, we're, now scientists are making this connection, right? They're they're wondering why, and they, they're diving into the brain and, and doing studies. I want to talk a bit about uh, wilderness. We've talked a lot about this on, you know, of course, you can't have a public radio program in the West and not talk about wilderness and public lands. But um, you you write about Edmund Burke. I hadn't necessarily connected him with with nature. Um, let's see. I'll just read a, a portion here. He said. Uh, he'd he'd been rambling around Ireland and feeling, for lack of a better word, moved. Sensitive and dramatic, he was less interested in landscapes that were picturesque than in scenes that were a, bit, a little bit dark. Haunting was good, terrifying even better. And then you quote to him, The passion caused by the great and sublime in nature, when those causes operate most powerfully, is astonishment. And astonishment is that state of the soul in which all its motions are suspended in some degree of horror. And, and then it gets into talking about awe, right, the, in, the, in the classic sense, sense of that word. Um, and other writers have talked about that as, that as well. Um, so is there, is there something different going on, isn't there, when, when you get down to, into wilderness? There does seem to be something, as, as David Strayer, the Utah University of Utah neuroscientist says, there seems to be something profound going on when we're out in deep wilderness. And Strayer has um, a phrase, he calls it the three-day effect. Uh, and he thinks something really shifts in our brains after three days um, in, in wilderness, you know, surrounded by natural beauty. It's hard to know whether that's partly because we're away, you know, from the sort of daily distractions, uh, you know, of our, of our normal lives, from, from phones and um, the demands of, you know, being at home. Um, but, but other researchers have shown that there's something about beauty, you know, especially beauty that really captures our attention. So, so Burke talked about, you know, beauty that's filled also with a little bit of fear, perhaps, or a little bit of amazement, um, the kind of thing that we might feel, you know, after we've witnessed an incredible thunderstorm, you know, in the canyons there in Utah, where you just see the water pouring over every cliff. It's, you know, it's really powerful, powerful things that we watch and, and things that, that nature provides. It turns out that, um, you know, we can feel awe, right, from lots of different things in our lives, from like the birth of a child, you know, or an incredible piece of music. Um, art can trigger awe. 
But nature, it turns out, provides it 70% of the time. So if you want to experience awe, nature is a good way to go. You know, there's, there's a reason, I think, too, that a lot of religions have used awe, you know, in the construction of big cathedrals and so on. It really seems to increase our sense of community, um, our sense of being a part of something larger than ourselves. And it's really it's good for us to, to feel that way once in a while. Yeah, Dr. Strayer apparently takes uh, takes students out into the wilderness what, every spring, right, as part of a class. And he says at a certain point, the, the social barriers break down. They start to, they start to bond. The, right, the there's bonding that happens in nature. You know, and, and a part of that also is that we're putting away our phones and we have to actually talk to each other. Um, but when you're actually doing activities together, um, it does bring people closer together. Um, when they're you know, solving problems out there on the trail, um, when they're um, you know, confronting um, you know, a difficult you know, part of a rock climb or you know, going down a river together, it really brings people together in a way that sometimes creates lasting friendships that can last a long time. Actually, I spent a week on the river with a group of women veterans uh, who had PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and, and part of the symptoms of PTSD are sort of the opposite of what happens in nature. So these women, you know, in their ho- home lives were, were feeling very closed in, um, isolated, um, fearful, anxious, not sleeping well. And when they got out on the river, it was just amazing and sort of beautiful to watch them really open up and um, to develop these long, deep friendships that have still lasted years later. Um, They developed more self-confidence, more self-esteem. They slept better. Uh, And I I think that some people, when they say that the wilderness provides a kind of anti-PTSD effect, that really makes sense to me. Uh, Tell me a little bit more about this this water as therapy, um, specifically for, for PTSD. I think, you know, like a lot of adventure sports, um, and, and water is just kind of running rivers is, is just one of those things. Um, you know, the veterans talk about when they, when they do these kind of outdoor adventure sports, it really demands their attention. They have to focus on what they're doing. And so, you know, the sort of background um, distress noise, you know, playback that a lot of people with PTSD get has to sort of stop for a while. And you have to really, like, focus on doing one thing after another, you know, you have to tie your knots properly if you're hanging off of a cliff. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to read the river. You have to be present. And it's that mindfulness, too, that can help take a lot of these people out of their sort of painful, painful parts of their brain and, and, and you know, provide some, some really welcome comfort and fun. Apparently, uh, getting kids outdoors can, can help at least some children with ADHD. Yeah, there's been some really interesting studies about that. Um, There are some studies out of Chicago suggest that uh, 20 minutes of playing uh, in a park for kids can provide the same kind of attention benefits as uh, taking Ritalin, which is a popular drug for ADHD. So the kids who who just ran around for 20 minutes, you know, had had just as as good focus, just as good concentration uh, as, as these kids who had taken Ritalin. Um, so that was pretty interesting. And unfortunately, you know, today our schools are set up in such a way that, you know, we make our kids just sit down in a square room with sometimes no windows all day long, and we wonder why they're kind of restless and distracted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why, I guess, as you mentioned, some doctors are prescribing some time outdoors. That's... Yeah, not only that, there's actually a, a school I found 
uh, based in North Carolina. It's an adventure boarding school. It's, it's just designed for kids with ADHD and mild autism. And what they found is that these kids go to the school where they spend like two weeks in the field and then two weeks on a very wooded campus. Um, the kids improve their concentration. They, um, their behavior improves. Some of them are able to go off medication for ADHD and anxiety. Um, it's an environment that is, uh, kind of plays to these kids' strengths. You know, kids with ADHD, like, um, they like having lots of different inputs coming at them. Um, they like being in an environment where they have to pay attention to the wind, or they have to pay attention um, to the weather or to the, to, the, to the cliff face that they're trying to climb. Um, they thrive uh, in adventure kind of, you know, high-risk situations. So it's kind of, it's, it was neat to watch these kids just really thrive. Apparently in Scotland they have a, a, something called an eco-therapeutic approach to caring for the mentally ill. Uh, right. Tell so me I, briefly yeah. about that. Um, some, kind of a similar idea that um, uh, being outside in nature can help promote social connection. Um, we know that you know, when people are depressed, sometimes they, they are feeling isolated. Uh, and so there are some mental health programs taking patients outside where they, they work on um, certain outdoor survival skills or, or even like woodland you know, arts and crafts projects. <laughs> and uh, they, 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 the patients start to get to know each other. They enjoy being out of their houses. Uh, it seems to have a really positive effect on a lot of people. Are there um, are there skeptics among the scientific community? A lot of scientists uh, studying this and and thinking that there's you know a connection uh, and and investigating the the reasons why. But are, are there skeptics uh, uh, among those the scientific community thinking that uh, perhaps we're taking things uh, too far? That we ought to go slower on this uh, investigating this connection. Yeah, I think there definitely are skeptics. Um, and part of it is that it's very hard to study what happens to people's brains in nature. Uh, you know, it's an uncontrolled environment. Uh, it's hard to tease out what the effects are. Um, there are some people who say, well, sure, these people with PTSD do well when they're outside, but it's, it's, what, it's the novelty effect. And the novelty effect just means they're doing something new. And when we do things new, it also makes us happy. Or it's that they're getting exercise, um, and that's what's making them happy. Um, or it's that, um, you know, they're, they're breathing fresher air. Uh, so, you know, it, it is, it's very hard to tease out exactly what the interactions are, but there are scientists who have figured out, you know, ways to kind of control for those factors. Um, and I think we're also starting to see larger studies that are, you know, expensive. Um, it's hard to do kind of a case control study where you, you know, have one group that is, you know, assigned, kind of randomly assigned to an outdoor intervention and another that may be assigned to something else where you need really large groups to see effects. But I think the science is starting to get a little better, but it's never going to be like you know studying a pill. It's just complicated. Yeah, there's a photograph in the book that uh, there are two women on a ledge, <laughs> big drop-off, and there's a computer on a, on a little ledge above them, wires going to the one woman's head, and another woman helping her with the... kind of illustrates the difficulty of doing this kind of science <laughs> in nature. Um, yeah, how do you bring all the field equipment into the wilderness? Yeah. Tricky. We just have about a minute left. I wonder, um, for the average person, you know, we, we know we live in the, you know, the digital life and we're, we have our screens. How do you balance that with, uh, with getting into the natural world? What are some suggestions you might have? 
Well, I'm definitely still a fan of my screens. You know, I need them for my work. Um, I, I love my iPhone as much as anyone. But I think we have to remember that both technology and nature are part of a sound diet. <laughs> you know, if you kind of think of it as a food pyramid, um, we just need to be sensible with our junk food, and we need to be sensible with our vegetables. <laughs> and nature not only is good for us, but it's also fun, unlike, you know, broccoli for some people. So I think sometimes we just have to prioritize it, you know, recognize how it can be helpful to us. And once we understand that, uh, you know, then I think, um, you know, we'll be able to structure our days and our lives accordingly. I'd just like to end with an Edward Abbey quote. You have this in the book, your first uh, you know, quote in the book. He says, uh, may your trails be crooked, winding, lonesome, dangerous, leading to the most amazing view. <laughs> I like that. That's uh, very, very apropos. Um, Florence Williams has been with us. Her latest book is The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. And she'll be at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City on Thursday, February 16th at 7 p.m. Florence Williams, thank you so much. Thank you. I can't wait to be in beautiful Utah. Well, uh, we... we uh, we are looking forward to having you come. Thanks for being thanks with for us today. Me on. And thanks for listening to the program. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.